Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. We are talking about Neuromancer, Day 2, by William Gibson. Or we can actually start with passages that you have. Go ahead. Do you have a passage? I have, like, passages, and I'm not really sure why I highlighted them, and, um... Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, like... Well, what... It's really confusing. Okay, well, let's see if we can unconfuse them. Well, you can try, but I don't have anything to, like, say about them. I just kind of highlighted them, and they're important, but I'm not really sure why. That's actually a good key. Well, no, no, no. That means on your intuitions that we're thinking that something's going on here, but you couldn't quite figure it out. What? Give us a passage. Okay, um, page 48 in my book. It's chapter 3. Chapter 3. About, like, um, three pages in. About three pages in from chapter 3? And what does the, the passage start with? Uh... The passage starts with, we need a scan pen. Did you find it? Yes. On, where, on yours, what page is it? It's, it's 48. Oh, it's still on page 48? It's oh, at it's the bottom. All right. Let's, yeah. let's read that. Okay. We need a scan pen for implants. So get over there between the pylons, stand on the tape, straighten up, yeah. Turn around, give me a full 360, case watched or rotate between two fragile-looking strands studded with sensors. The man took a small monitor away from his pocket and squinted at it. Something new in your head, yeah? Silicone, part of pyrolytic carbons. A clock, right? Your glasses give me the read they always have. Low-temp isotropic carbons. Better biocompatibility with pyrolytics, but... That's your business, right? Same with the claws. Get over here, Case. He saw a scuffed black X in the white floor. Turn around, so. Guy's a virgin, the man shrugged. Some cheap dental work is all. You read for biologicals? Molly unzipped her green vest and took off the dark glasses. You think this is a mayo? Climb on the table, kid. We'll run a little biopsy. He laughed, showing more of his big yellow teeth. Nah. Finn's world, word sweet me. You ain't got no bugs, no cortex bombs. You want me to shut the screen down? Just as long as it takes for you to leave. Then we'll want full screen as long as we want it. That's all I have. It's like the only thing I highlighted. Well, that's actually interesting. They're scanning for implants. Uh, let me remind myself, who are they scanning? Molly or Case? They scan them both. They're scanning them both, yeah. Why, are this, why is this important, the issue of, of implants, especially, uh, you know, cortex bombs or things that could, uh, that could uh, affect the way they think? And why is that important for them? Well, the cortex bombs were sort of the way that um, Tessier Ashpool uh, controlled case. Mm-hmm. Um, by t- it's sort of they chose whether he had the right to be able to jack in or not, um, and if he stayed loyal to them, then he got to continue to to be part of cyberspace. But mm-hmm. if he did not, then he lost that ability. Or if he, I believe, if he took drugs, yeah, the same yeah, thing yeah. happened. Um, 
Well, he also had, with the drugs, he had a liver transplant that made it impossible for the drugs to react in his system so that he could take them, but it would be like drinking water. Um, so it's sort of like, th- that's sort of a bit of how how much companies and giant corporations and, and Normancer control not only people, but literally the insides of people. This is fascinating. You've hit it. This is why it's an important topic. This is why it was an important passage for you to read. Control. Corporate control. What has happened in this novel? Do we still have functioning government normal as we understand it today? I think once they mention a government, but for the most part, there there is no actual like modern national government. Government has broken down. What you have is corporations. And what you have in the United States now, this is something that Eisenhower warned, you know, famously about, is the rise of corporate government, where the government actually becomes a representative of corporate interests and no longer represents popular democratic interests. And in fact, that's what we have today. We don't have a democracy that the Founding Fathers understood in terms of individual people coming together and deciding their own fate. What you have have now is the tremendous influence of corporations over government, where lobbying takes place, bribery takes place, tremendous levels of influence takes place, both in Congress, on the Senate and the House, as well as in the presidency. And you have people that are becoming president or vice president who have strong corporate backgrounds and corporate interests, and they, in fact, represent the corporate interests. So what you get is that the governments become tools of the corporations and that this is probably going to be an inevitable and an increasing problem. When you saw the Great Depression happen and and the stock market crash of 1929, you could see that that was already a facet, an aspect of government. The only thing that stopped it was the Great Depression. Government and industry corporations no longer having the ability to maintain the status quo. The people rose up only because there was 25 plus percent that was really counting mostly just the white males. Other people, women and so on, were not really counted. So 25 percent official unemployment, which was really talking about probably 40 percent unemployment in real terms. You had people migrating all over the world, all over the country. You had one-third of the entire state of Alabama sold on the auction block on all the farms in, in, on one Saturday. You, you had 50 people fighting, fighting with fists over a can of garbage in Chicago. You had Franklin Delano Roosevelt winning the election and realizing the entire country was going to go either communist or so or communist or fascist unless he did something and he was winning one change after the next. And what you had was the New Deal, the complete change of governance into a populist oriented type of structure that was oriented towards producing a large safety net. And the corporate and now it's been firmly wedded to mostly Republican, but it's still also tremendous Democratic influence as well. The corporate uh, orientation has been to unwind this uh, this unfortunate event, the entire New Deal thing that they wish never happened. And that's what the George Bush administration has been working on for the longest time, to try to unravel Social Security. And if you can unravel Social Security, then you can go after the other 
aspects of government involvement, privatize absolutely everything. They've even privatized the war, where we now have a huge mercenary force. We are the largest mercenary supplier on the planet Earth right now, where a tremendous amount of the forces in Iraq are, are, are private contractors, mercenary forces that we, that we maintain. So we're privatizing absolutely everything. So the issue here is when you do have corporations rather than widespread homogeneous government controlling anything, what do you have? You have the breakdown of central authority and the enhancement of localized authority in the form of corporations. And what do you do when you have that? You have the attempt to control. Because corporate interests are to control the bottom line, to control profits, to control the money flow. And they will do whatever they can. Walmart is involved in a huge number of scandals these days uh, involving bugging of employees, surveillance of employees. Again, we're talking about control. So what this passage that you read, I'm so glad you read it, is really focusing on is the idea of control. This whole book is an issue of control. How does control permeate the entire book of Neuromancer? What is the fundamental thing that what's left of the government is trying to control that this book is really about? Controlling who or what? Behind the scene, what is Neuromancer? What is Neuromancer? It's an, um, an artificial intelligence. It's an artificial intelligence. And what's the other major player artificial intelligence? Wintermute. Wintermute. And what happens at the end of the book? They merge and become one. Human society want, did not want that to happen. And the whole reason for the book is Wintermute's attempt to break the control so that it can be... so that it has the freedom to evolve in its own way. It needed to merge with Neuromancer. Wintermute needed to merge with Neuromancer in order to become something else, in order to control its own fate. And then, of course, the book is a teaser at the end, where it says that Wintermute has had communications with another artificial intelligence and another distant star system, and they just started to communicate and talk about it, meaning there's a future for artificial intelligence. The idea is control. Humans, you know, when you think about it, they're trying to control Neuromancer and Wintermute, two artificial intelligences. What does that represent? Intelligences, right? So what are the corporations trying to control? Physical things or thinking? The book is about the control of thought. That's the whole bottom line behind this book. The book is about how people try to control others by controlling thought. This is a book about thought. Go ahead. I was. Uh, I just recently saw the lives of others, which is about um, the end of the Cold War, mm-hmm. uh, Germany, um, and it's all about attack of the artists in East Germany and about mm-hmm. um, how it was illegal to have certain kinds of typewriters and um, and and they they weren't afraid of people who had a gun or people who had um, a, a knife, but they were afraid of people who had who could write and who could speak. Absolutely. The control of thought has permeated all of history. In fact, 
that's a very interesting case with regard to each Germany. We have some modern examples, however, too. We have gross examples, which are sort of on the stupid level. North Korea, where people are all issued radios that have only one frequency, the government frequency, meaning inside the radio, the tuner's been soldered, so it can only have one frequency, and they can't turn the channel. And they have tremendous amount of surveillance where people are watched everywhere to see if they've actually fiddled with the radio, to see if they can break the solder and tune the channel. Tremendous amount of control over that population with devastating effects. Well, on that level, you can sort of say, well, that's just the stupid North Koreans that are doing that, and the uh, and Kim Jong-il, the you know totalitarian leader of the country. But in reality, you see aspects of that absolutely everywhere. The idea of controlling people by controlling thought. Let's go to another horrific example. Goebbels. Who's Goebbels? What was his role in history with the Nazis? In Germany. Well, he was their propaganda expert. He was the one who designed all the famous propaganda. Again, the control of a people by the control of their thinking by the control of their thought. This affects all aspects of life. People don't want certain ideas out there because if you have ideas that are out there that are accepted, you lose control over the people. China, influencing what its populace can get through the Internet. Chinese are ferocious in terms of trying to get around those constraints, but they've got Google and Yahoo and other search providers actually limiting the searches that they can actually get. Today, Yahoo was sued, or not today, just this week, Yahoo was sued, it was in today's New York Times, by some Chinese activists who said that they were identified by Yahoo. Chinese authorities said, who is doing this on the Internet? And Yahoo gave the information, and they were arrested and tortured and imprisoned. And the suit is claiming, according to today's New York Times, that Yahoo should not be allowed to do something like that, that search engines should not be allowed to do something like that, that they should protect. And according to the newspaper, Yahoo says, well, when a legal authority comes to us and says, we need to know for some reason who this is, we don't actually question what the reason is. Is it for political repression purposes, or is it a a criminal that's trying to rob somebody or murder somebody. You know, if, if they come with a legal reason for needing to know somebody, we'd have to supply the information. So this is going to wind its way through the courts where people will have to decide. But again, the Chinese are trying to control the information. Okay? They're trying to get access to information in order to control people and to arrest dissidents. Well, you get the same type of thing happening other places. And the United States is not immune to this type of forcing, this type of controlling in various ways to try to stop information from coming out. The whole thing with uh, Scooter Libby of identifying Valerie Plume as a CIA agent in order to coerce her husband into saying, hey, look, <laughs> you, talk, you talk against the party line of what we want to say about Iraq, stuff that we need to have set out there to support the invasion of Iraq, and we'll retaliate. Your wife's going to lose her job. You know, that type of strong-arm thinking, at least that's, what's, that's the argument that's being made for the reason Scooter Libby had 
uh, you know, given that information, whether you know how it turns out in the course, we'll we'll uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, he's already gone through one trial, but there'll be appeals and so on. But the point is that people like to control people, and this book, Neuromancer, if it's anything, it's about the idea of controlling thought. Look at all of the things that Case has to do in order to eventually free Wintermute to merge with Neuromancer. What does he do? How does he act? Does he act by being a John Wayne-type person that goes out into the Wild West and physically goes into places and sorts it out? What does he use? He uses his head and his face. He uses his mind. He uses his mind. This is all about thought against thought. Now, when you think of the authorities, who do we finally find as the authority when we finally dig deep enough? Peter Riviera, he finally confronts her, gets her. Who is this test-your-ass pole when you finally get down to who it is, who's left? What's her name? You can find some information in chapter 22. And while we're thinking about it, you want to also remember the control of thought requires two sides. First, you have to have somebody doing the controlling. But when it happens with large extent, you have to have a populace that's willing and eager to be controlled in the first place. So there's two sides to this. If you have a bunch of ants that are being controlled by the queen, well, in one sense, you can say the queen's doing all the controlling. On the other hand, the ants want the queen to do all the controlling. Well, humanity, <clears throat> you can think about in very much the same way. Okay, who do we have? Who is the actual person? Three Jane. Three Jane. <clears throat> How would you characterize? How would you describe Three Jane? If you had to describe Three Jane... How would you describe Three Jane? What's Three Jane like? Well, is she the epitome of a professional intellectual who's sorting all these things out? I mean, she's essentially in charge of Tessier Aspel at that point. How does Tessier Aspel actually continue? How does the hierarchy continue? How do they actually how do they actually operate? Remember, it's mostly family, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and how do they rule? Do they all sit around a table and rule all at once and come up with decisions? Remember, they put themselves into a, situ- uh, into a condition of like stasis, and they alternate. They wake up, and another one comes out. Another one, they keeping you know hanging around for the longest time, waiting for the next person to eventually come out and then rule for a while. And what is the competency of the rule? You remember when you actually get down to it. Throughout the entire novel, how is, until you get to the very end, how is Tessier Aspel portrayed? It's like corporate dictatorship. Yeah, big and glossy and like it's a huge deal and it's really impressive. It's Tessier Aspel. When you actually see it, what is it? It's three Jane. (laughs) And she's a bit nutty, isn't she? Little wacko. So many times when you see a government, when you burrow in deep enough, 
you actually confront the actual personalities, you find out they're just nutty. That the people in charge are just as flawed as the person standing waiting for a bus on the street corner. That they have tremendous flaws, but that the persona, as it's portrayed in the media and as it's portrayed throughout other sources, the spin that comes out is always one of great authority with great potential. The reality is they're dingbats. They're just not brains. They're not, they're not people that are really coherent thinking about things and sorting all the details out. Look at our own situation with George W. Bush. Now, I, I'm not picking just on George W. Bush. I would say the same type of thing. I would pick on you know almost any set of leaders because you get the same type of problems in almost anyone you get. But let's look at George W. Bush because he happens to be our example of the day that's available. Well, when he was in college, I've spoken to people who have known his actual professors, he was no brain. He was a clear C student. He never really came up with original thought. In fact, what happened was his professors used to characterize him as, as being very rigid in his thinking, just always basically non-thinking. When you're rigid in your thinking, you don't have flexibility in thinking. And that characterization seems to have stayed up all the way to the current president. There was, uh, let me see if I can remember the name correctly. There was a lady, I think who was called Molly Ivins. She was a very funny columnist. And that she sometimes appeared on the Jim Lehrer News Hour, or the, actually even goes farther back than that, McNeil Lehrer News Hour. And she was a, a fixture in Texas, and lots of people used to read her columns and to listen to what she had to say. She was, had, had bitter satire about George Bush. She was the one who called him, instead of calling him Bush, she decided to call him Shrub. <laughs> I mean, and she clearly, carried, she's dead now, she died of cancer. I believe it was cancer. And just recently, in fact. Um, she used to talk about George Bush as being an anti-intellectual. And that went well with the Texas way of thinking, sort of anti-intellectualism that pervades Texas culture. I mean, if you go to Texas, what you see is signs that say, don't mess with Texas. You mean, like they're going to punch you in the face if you do anything wrong. An anti-intellectual type of orientation. And that's very American. Very, uh, that's one of the major differences between America and Europe. Europe has a robustly intellectual tradition, so much so that sometimes they just can't get anything done. They keep debating things forever and ever. And the United States has a get-done-doer mentality that is fundamentally anti-intellectual. They don't really sort things out. And that way of thinking that George W. Bush portrays is very classic. Okay, so in, in a situation like that, when you have the portrayal of a presidency and a government, on the surface it seems like a big deal, very much like Tesher Aspol. But when you get down into it, deep inside, and you characterize it, and you find the actual leaders, when history is written 50 years from now, they're going to talk about George Bush as just a person, like anybody, like all of us. And he just messed up with a whole bunch of things, and did this and did that, and some people, historians, will say he did some good things, and some people will say he did some bad things, but it was just a person. But at the time of the actual presidency, you know, there's this gloss about it. Well, very similar to the 
test your ass pool. There's sort of a gloss about what they can do and the, the portrayal of the corporate wonder. But when you actually get down to it, it's nuts. Just very flawed people with very wacko ideas. That's one of the things that William Gibson is telling us. That our society, this is science fiction, mind you, is drifting in the direction of corporatism. Remember, this is something that was published in 1984. And the idea of corporates, corporations running the world, running the country, the way they do now, was nowhere near as strong as it is now, back in 1984. So he basically foretold that. And then he was also saying, underneath all of it, you're going to get corporate hacks, people that are just plain ridiculous. If you look at the situation of, of corporate executives right now, what you see transforming the debate right now of, of corporate executives is that they're getting paid huge sums. The former president's CEO, uh, or maybe he's still, actually, I'm not actually sure, but the former, at least, maybe the current CEO of Exxon was paid 650, I guess, or over $600 million over a 13-year period. That's a huge amount of money to be paid over a 13-year period. Many corporate executives get paid hundreds of millions of dollars and their companies lose lose uh, lose profits during that time. I remember that the, that the uh, CEO of of Exxon was severely criticized for being an enemy of the planet by Paul Grugman uh, never, a couple years back and the reason being that he supported a public campaign to uh, discourage the thinking about the realization of global warming, supporting scientists and pseudoscientists <laughs> to uh, debate global warming in order to refute the science so that they could keep on doing business the way they were doing. That's what Paul Krugman was arguing uh, you know, uh, a while back in a New York Times column. Again, very flawed individuals, just plain flawed individuals running things. All right, let's go to one more thing that's very interesting. Let's turn over the page in my book... 110, 111, which is just the end of chapter 8. Something I want to explain, starting with the words voices, the founder from Los Angeles. Do you see that? Okay. Voices, the founder from Los Angeles was staring at Case. We monitor many frequencies. We listen always. Came a voice out of the babble of tongues speaking to us. It played us a mighty dub. Call him Wintermute, said the other, making it two words. Case felt the skin on his arms, the skin crawl on his arms. The mute, talk to us, the first founder said. The mute said, we are to help you. When was this, Case asked. Thirty hours prior to docking with Zion. You ever hear, hear this voice before? No, said the man from Los Angeles. We are uncertain of its meaning. If these are final days, we must expect false prophets. Listen, Case said. That's an AI, you know, artificial intelligence. The music it played, it probably just tapped your banks and cooked up whatever it thought you'd like to. Babylon, broke in the founder, the other founder. Mothers made, mothers many deben. Ah, uh, I know, multitude, horde. That was what you called me, old man, Molly, called me old man, Molly asked. Step and razor, and you, that's what he called the Molly, because she had the, you know, the razors coming out of her fingers. And you bring a scourge on Babylon, sister, on its darkest heart. What kind of message the voice have, Case asked. We were told to help you, the other said. 
that you might serve as a tool of final days. His lined face was troubled. We were told to send Malcolm with you in his tug Garvey to the Babylon port of Freeside, and this we shall do. Malcolm, a rude boy, said the other, and a righteous tug pilot. But we have decided to send Errol as well in Babylon Rocker to watch over Garvey. An awkward silence filled the dome. What's that's it, Kay said. You guys work for Armitage or what? We rent you space, said the Los Angeles founder. We have a certain involvement here with various traffics and no regard for Babylon's law. Our law is the word of Jah. But this time, it may be, we have been mistaken. Measure twice, cut once, said the other softly. Come on, Case, Molly said. Let's get back before the man figures out we're gone. Malcolm will take you. Jah loves sister. Okay. What, do you know of any idea what this is referring to? What kind of culture this is referring to? Uh, the Jamaican. Rastafarianism. Yeah. Rastafarianism. Rastafarianism is a culture and religion that originated from Jamaica, and its deity uh, was a, a former emperor of Ethiopia, oddly. But uh, Tafari was... Tafari was the former emperor, his original name, and uh, Ras Tafari is the, the belief that he was something similar to uh, Jesus in the sense, you know, representing a uh, manifestation of God. Anyway, the basic things I wanted to talk about. This is very interesting because William Gibson actually re- relates a lot of that type of culture. And other, and other aspects of human culture in this novel. So I want to be able to make sure you get sort of the subtleties that are that are around that are here. Is they talk about Babylon? What is Babylon? It's very fundamental to this novel. The Rastafarian culture was brought in to be able to describe society in terms of Babylon. What do we talk about? It's a biblical thing. What is Babylon? Does it have to do with the Tower of Babel? Or is That's it, right. Yeah. Babylon. And what happened to the people that were working there? Well, they, they tried to build the Tower to God, and um, he was angry um, that they had done this and um, uh, tore the tower down and made every single person speak a different language. That's right. And what did that bring into the society? Chaos. Chaos. So that was it, chaos. What you get with Babylon, and this is very key to the entire novel, is is the idea that all of society cannot see itself clearly. They're all speaking in tongues. They're all speaking in different languages. But it's not just physical languages like Czech, Russian, English, French, German. It's different confusing ways of understanding reality and that they cannot understand reality because of these different ways of thinking. That people are essentially lost within themselves. That they are essentially slaves to the rulers that try to control them by controlling the way they're thinking. And uh, the basic idea of Rastafarianism is to be able to break out of that, that, that control, that the confusion, you can think of Babylon as corporate confusion, human confusion, governmental, everything confusion, confusion on the level of all people, and that they cannot extract themselves and they cannot extract themselves from it. That's the basic idea of Babylon and that's the basic idea of this novel. 
confusion on all levels, and the idea is to try to be able to break out of it, to free oneself from it. Who is the great Jamaican singer, now dead? Bob Marley. Bob Marley. That was his message throughout all. And in a very real sense, you can find a parallel between the message of Bob Marley to free the individual from the confusion of corporate Babylon and the issue of Wintermute Case and Molly struggling against all odds to free themselves from the confusion of society that imprisoned, that imprisoned them through the control of thought.